Also, how God's character, God's actions, God's presence, maybe God's promises uh, inform might uh, might inform how we how we feel. So, uh, two weeks ago, we looked at Psalm 31. We dealt with the issue of despair. That was a lot of fun. Uh, uh, Psalm 63, which we did last week, we looked at the at the sort of empty soul where you're just the tank is empty, you got nothing left. What do you do with that? And today we're looking at Psalm 110. So if you got your Bibles or your apps, you can get to those, get to that passage. Um, I will tell you up front that what is interesting about this Psalm is uh, is that the author and what the author is feeling is completely absent from the Psalm. It's uh, like the first cat we saw in the video who's just not feeling it about getting a bath, right? Uh, not feeling like a bath today. This, this is really weird for the Psalms because in almost every Psalm, you, you end up with some sense of what the author uh, is feeling and, and how he is responding to something, uh, responding to a situation, a circumstance, uh, how he, maybe how he feels about God because of the situation and the circumstance he finds himself in. Maybe he's even railing against God in some, in some way. But here in Psalm 10, there's just, there's just none of that. Uh, so uh, that said, it's kind of hard to imagine that King David, who wrote this particular psalm, uh, isn't feeling something, but it's just that he's, he's not choosing to disclose what it is. He's focused on something else, because there's something that's going on that, that David shares with us in this psalm that's going on completely outside of what is happening in David's world at the moment. But, but if we think that David wrote this and it has no effect on how he's feeling, I, I, think, I think we'd be wrong. He, he may just be so awestruck at what he is feeling based on what he discovers in this psalm that he, he just has a hard time putting his feelings into words. So we're, we're going to look at this psalm, and I'll just tell you up front, it's a bit wonky, right? If that's a word, is that a word, wonky? Uh, we're going to read it together, and then you're going to be thinking to yourself, what, what in the world is this all about? And then uh, we're going to walk back through it and, and make sense of it, or at least we'll give it a shot, try to make sense of it. And, and you might find at the end that there's, there's maybe a whole lot more than you imagined at first reading. It's only seven verses. Here we go. Psalm 110. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments. From the womb of the morning, the dew of your youth will be yours. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. He will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. He will drink from the brook by the way. Therefore, he will lift up his head. Are you properly baffled? No? Somebody else want to come up and preach this? Because I'd be happy to let you do that if you think you got this one down. Let me pray for us and we'll get to it and see what it's got in there. God, thank you for this time together. Thanks for these people that have shown up. Thanks for the hearts that are here. Thanks for the lives that they live. Thanks for the mission that you've given us to go into this world and proclaim you to, to the nations around us. I ask you to kind of descend on us now. Be, be among us. Help us to see what you want us to see from this seven short passage sentences. 
and that we might be yours even afresh today. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, if you happen to be a Christian in the first century, you would know Psalm 110. It was, it was a bestseller, right? Maybe not up there with the last selfie, but it, it, was, it was pretty up there. It's a song. It's a psalm that was sung in the temple. It was probably been the amazing grace of the early church. It would have been the text for many Bible studies and home groups that met around the, the, the uh, Roman Empire. It turns out to be one of the most important passages in all of the New Testament, actually. For example, when the writer of the book of Hebrews wants to explain who Jesus is, he goes to Psalm 110. In fact, Psalm 110 is probably the most quoted or eluded to Old Testament passage in all of the New Testament. Yet my guess is none of us have really actually thought about or heard about, maybe, maybe even never heard a message that even has the, that sort of bounces off the uh, topic of Psalm 110. You, you won't have to say that after today. But, but why is this psalm so foreign to us? And, I, and here's why I think. The major themes of this psalm deal with kingship and priesthood and judgment. And those things just don't carry a lot of weight in our world today. When's the last time you ever thought long and hard about priesthood, right? And then there's that wacky, murky verse 4, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Who? What? You might be the most devoted Christian that's ever walked the planet, but you're not naming your kid Melchizedek, right? I mean, there are people named Mel, which is usually short for Melvin, like, you know, Mel Brooks, or maybe Melford or Melwood or something, but not short for Melchizedek. But listen, when Jesus thought about and taught about who he was, when the early church thought about and taught about who Jesus was, they thought about and taught from Psalm 110. So I'm just kind of thinking, well, what might actually happen if we got some more familiarity with it? What, what maybe insights, what, what maybe power, what maybe feelings might emerge if we grabbed onto the truth of some stuff that's in here? <clears throat> so let's look at the, the main themes here. Let's start, with, let's start with king, king, priest, and judgment. Let's start with king. And right off the bat, in verse one, there's a mystery to be solved. Not as hard as how to keep a woman happy, but it's a mystery nonetheless that we've got to solve before we can make sense of this psalm. And in verse 1, here's part of the mystery. The author of the psalm is David, okay? King David. And David is the king of Israel. And at that time, there was sort of a hierarchy, political, religious hierarchy, theological hierarchy, and it kind of went like this. There was God sitting above and then there was like a human ruler of a territory underneath God, sort of a vice regent that was the king. And at this time, D David is the king. So David begins this psalm by kind of sharing a dialogue that he's either witnessed or some truth about uh, that God has revealed to him in some way. So David's not in this particular part of the conversation. He's just relaying what's going on. He's sharing with us about this conversation that's kind of taking place or has taken place in the heavenlies. And, uh, oh, by the way, I've got this next slide. Go ahead and put that up. There you go. The caption for this was, Lordy, Lordy, I missed my stop. Okay, that's the caption. But I could not find a, a way to print this off and get the caption there, so I just have to tell you that the caption is, Lordy, Lordy, 
I missed my stop. I, th I think this is hilarious, but you don't think so? Okay. <laughs> I do the slides for me. If you happen to enjoy them, that's good for you. Lordy, Lordy is the key words there, right? I used it because of the Lordy, Lordy thing that happens in verse 1. Because in this psalm, you've got, you've got the Lord talking to someone that David refers to as my Lord. The Lord says to my Lord, right? Now, it's pretty clear who the first Lord is. If you've got your Bibles or apps, you, you could see this pretty clearly in your, in, your, in your copy. If you don't have your Bible, then you're just going to have to rely on me not conning you, which is never a good place to be in. So, you know, trust and verify, right? But, so mark down on your notes to check this out in your Bible. Check out Psalm 10 when you get home. And you'll see that in your translations, you're going to see that the first Lord mentioned is in all caps. That's the way that the translators would translate from Hebrew into English and denote that that particular word is Yahweh, the God of Israel that brought Israel out of bondage and slavery in Egypt, okay? But the second Lord, which is my Lord, the Lord said to my Lord, is, is a completely different word entirely. It actually translates as the master whom I serve. And that's a step up from master of disguise, okay? So, so who is the second Lord? Who, who is this? I mean, there's God, Yahweh, right? And you're only supposed to serve God if you're the king or anybody else. That's the only authority in the land that's higher than the king. So, so what master is David saying he's serving besides, besides Yahweh? Besides God, who, who would dare claim to be worthy of being served right up there with, with Yahweh? And the language for this particular Lord, my Lord, is pretty elevated. You have, the Lord says, my Lord, sit at my right hand. And this right hand is a reference to a place of privilege and honor. And any person invited to sit there has accomplished something, or else he wouldn't be sitting down. Whatever he did, it's done, it's over, and he can sit down now and take a load off. So you have this my Lord who's in a place of authority, a place of rule, a place of accomplishment, sitting right alongside Yahweh. And there in verse 2, we've got more details. This my Lord, he has a scepter, and he's ruling in the midst of his people, of his enemies, I mean. And then people are, his people are offering themselves freely to him, to serve him, this my Lord. They're giving their lives to him in allegiance. So you've got this my Lord who has a scepter and a people, and, and he rules, and by any definition, that makes him a king. And he's going to crush all of his enemies before he's done. And he's seated at a place of honor, privilege, and authority right along with, with God. So who is this king that is actually the king that David serves sitting over himself? Who is this Lord that David has given his life to? And for a thousand years after David wrote this psalm, the mystery just continued. Now, one thing that the Israelites concluded from reading the entirety of the Old Testament, all the prophecies through the Old Testament, what they concluded was this. Well, th this Lord, this mysterious Lord, this uh, my Lord that David's referring to, is in fact the Messiah that God promised all the way back in Genesis 13. And as the, un as the Old Testament kind of unfolded, they got more details about this Messiah. This Messiah, he's going to come, and he's going to rule the nations. He's going to deliver Israel. He's going to bring peace and blessing that's going to flow out to every tribe and nation. But for a thousand years, the identity of this person was completely unknown. They had, no, they had no idea who this was. But in Matthew chapter 22, a thousand years later, Jesus has arrived, and he's teaching. And there's been a ton of discussion about who this Jesus guy is. Been a lot of arguments 
A lot of debates about who this Jesus person is. I mean, some of them among the people who are actually following Jesus, right? But certainly a whole lot of debate among the religious leaders who, as a group, very skeptical of Jesus, very fearful of Jesus and what he's up to, and just a little envious of Jesus because of what he can do. Finally, Jesus enters into this great debate. I mean, if you're going to sit around and talk about me, I guess I'll join in. And Jesus starts this part of the discussion with this. Okay, what do you think about this Messiah? Whose son is he? Well, the people having, you know, read the Old Testament, the religious leaders having read the Old Testament, they they have an answer for that. Oh, Messiah. He's the son of David. They're right. And they're right. Old Testament's pretty clear that Messiah is going to come through the tribe of Judah, the family line of David. So Jesus tells them, hey, good answer. You're right. So what do you do with Psalm 110? And Jesus brings up Psalm 110. Well, if the Messiah is the son of David, an offspring of David, comes down the line far after David, then why does David call him my Lord? In other words, how could the Messiah, who shows up long after David shows up, be both the son of David and yet the Lord of David? And it says the people who heard this question had no answer. And the Bible says, from that moment on, they stopped asking him questions. (laughs) Because it was a riddle they could not solve. And Jesus is bringing up this tricky Semitic problem. Semitic peoples are basically Jews and all the Arabs. Okay, that's the Semites. If you are in that world are called the son of somebody, you are automatically an inferior to, a subordinate of, a lesser than, the person that you are named after. So Osama bin Laden. He comes from the Arab world, right? Okay. That's, his name means Osama, son of Laden. So it means that he gets his credibility, he gets his authority, he gets his, his influence, his power from his father named Laden. So if you're the son of Abraham or the son of David, that means your identity is based on who Abraham is or based on who David is. If you're David, if you are if you are the son of, then it means you're automatically lesser than the other person. So you've got this riddle. How can this Messiah in Psalm 110 be the Lord of David, superior to David, and yet be the son of David, which would imply that he is inferior to, subordinate to, less than David. Yeah, but imagine sitting there like that for a thousand years trying to figure this out. Okay, Jesus steps up in John chapter 8 and solves the riddle. Here's how he does it. He says this, okay, in human terms, I am the son of David. I came through the line of David. I'm not, but I'm not, uh, in a, I'm not a, uh, David is not an authority over me. I'm not inferior to David. I am, in fact, David's Lord. I'm his master. I'm his God. Why? Because before Abraham was, I existed. Meaning before Abraham existed, Jesus is saying, I already was. I existed before Abraham showed up. Which means I existed long before David showed up because Abraham's a lot older than David. Now that was 
crazy talk to his listeners because they looked at Jesus and said, man, you're not even 50 years old yet. How could you be older than Abraham? And then God, Jesus says this, before Abraham was, I am. And Jesus used the same phrase, the same title, that when God called Moses to lead the people out of Israel, and Moses had 500 reasons why he shouldn't go, and finally, God gets kind of angry with him, and Moses finally says, okay, if I go there and I talk to these people, and they have a question, like, who's, on whose authority am I coming to lead the people out of, out of Egypt? Who, who shall I tell them sent me? And God says, just tell them, I am who I am sent you. Jesus uses that same phrase to describe who he is to his listeners there in Israel a thousand years later. So basically saying, yeah, I'm Yahweh. Tell him Yahweh sent me. He's claiming to be God. He's claiming to be the God of the nations, the one who's going to rule and defeat all of his enemies. He's going to overcome all the kings, all the nations, the one who's going to have absolute authority, including ultimately, whether you like it or not, you and, over you and me. Now that should at least cause us to wonder. Because here's what history shows, does it not? Anyone on earth who's ever grasped at complete authority and then claimed divine authority to do it ends up being evil, don't they? And they're ultimately crushed. But if Jesus is who he says he is, the I am who told Moses, just tell the Israelites, I am sent you to lead you to freedom. Or maybe you and I should do what David did. Give him our complete allegiance. Or, the alternative, be crushed as one of his enemies. But notice this, that he rules in the midst of his enemies. This my Lord is ruling and reigning, but in the midst of his enemies. And here we see, I think, where the psalmist kind of aims at some of our emotions. Because David here has this ruling king who's going to come someday and bring peace and overcome all his enemies. But he's still operating in a world right now where there are enemies. He still lives in a world with enemies all around. He rules, but in the midst of his enemies. That means that in your life, he rules even in the midst of your pain. He rules in the midst of your confusion. He rules in the midst of miscarriages of justice. He, he rules in the midst of disease. He rules in the midst of death, in the midst of grief, in the midst of heartache. He rules in the midst of his enemies. And so one of the things that David has had to learn, and one of the things I think this psalm drives us to learn, is how to live in the, he's already ruling, <laughs> but he has not yet put all his enemies crushed under his feet. We got a good king who's ruling and he's still waiting for his enemies to be made a footstool. We have to learn to wait for this king to vanquish all his enemies, for everything to be peace and harmony. I think that one of the most powerful and evident signs of a mature Christian is someone who's growing in the ability to wait. Patience. Waiting to see what God will do, knowing that he's ultimately going to do everything that needs to be done and bring complete peace. I mean, isn't it true that you and I probably don't go through any week of our lives without having to have the pressure to wait? I think our maturity is based on living in the tension of a good king who rules, but in the midst of his enemies. So we're waiting. We're waiting because he's the king and he's going to be victorious eventually in good time. So that's the king part. 
The second thing the psalm tells us is that this Messiah, this Jesus, not only a king, but he's a priest. Yeah, the king is also a priest. And this is where it gets really weird, okay? Here's verse, here's verse 4. The Lord has sworn, that's capital L-O-R-D, that's Yahweh, so the, the, big, the big God has sworn to the lesser, to, not the lesser, but the other, the, David's Lord. I, I've sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. So this capital Lord, Yahweh, has sworn something to this lowercase Lord that is David's God, right? David serves. And what he says is that this Lord is not only just a king, but a priest, like a person who's kind of dual-headed, like a player coach. And not only a priest, but a priest forever. So Jesus, who claims to be this king, happens to also be a priest. Now, if you are an Israelite, and you are singing this song in the temple, which they did, you're going to feel very weird. And you're going to feel even weirder because King David is the guy who wrote it. And you're going to say, why would everybody feel weird about this? Okay, here's, here's why. First, it's against Mosaic law for someone to be both a priest and a king. In Mosaic law, that God gave to Moses as the nation of Israel that he pulled out of slavery in Egypt at Mount Sinai, he's given them all the regulations. All of the kings are to come from the tribe of Judah. Okay, line of Judah, David's in that, in that line. But all the priests come from the tribe of Levi. Two different tribes. And David, of all people, should know that, that ne'er the twain shall meet, right? Because the only reason that David is king is because his predecessor, King Saul, tried to be both king and serve as a priest. And God said, enough of you. You're out of here. And he replaced King Saul with David. So David, of all people, should know that a king shouldn't be trying to serve as a priest too. But here's David, having written a psalm where he presents this figure who's going to be a priest-king. Now, to give you a little definition, David says that this priest-king isn't going to actually come out of Israel. He's going to come through the line of David, but he's coming not from the tribe of Judah or tribe of Levi or any other tribe. He's coming from this order of Melchizedek. So who in the world is Melchizedek, and what in the world is David talking about? Well, here's the story of Melchizedek, and you may not know it because it's only about four verses long. Uh, put this down in your notes, Genesis chapter 14, you can, you can read about this later, Genesis chapter 14. Uh, here's what you got. you got. You got five kings that go to war with four kings. They're not like kings of nations like you have here. It's almost like the king of Alexandria and the king of Falls Church and the king of Reston and the king of, you know, Arlington. That's what we're talking about. But the, the four kings beat the five kings. And in taking the spoils of victory, they grab some of Abraham's offspring or relatives. So Abraham gathers his guys together and they go after these four kings and they actually defeat them and rescue all their relatives. And so a representative of the four kings comes to Abraham to discuss terms of peace. And out of nowhere at this meeting, no introduction, no history, no genealogy, nothing. Out of nowhere, person no one ever heard of before, this Melchizedek shows up at the meeting. It says he is the king of Salem, which translates to king of peace, but he's also a priest of the most high God. So he is, worship, he is serving God, Yahweh. So he's a king and a priest, right? Shows up for four verses. He comes into the meeting with bread and wine. That ring any bells for anybody? Then he blesses Abraham. 
then Abraham tithes one-tenth of all he owns to this Melchizedek in, in honor of God. And then Melchizedek is gone. And, and throughout the rest of the Old Testament, he never shows up again, except in Psalm 110, right? But this Psalm and the New Testament picks up on him. He's hugely important. Here's what we f- find in the book of Hebrews in chapter 7. Write that down as well. Check it out. Here's how it explains Genesis chapter 14. It says that Melchizedek was actually a picture of what Jesus would do. He just kind of shows up. I mean, Jesus had some questions about his genealogy, right? Who his dad was, right? There was all kinds of questions about that. When did, Je- when did Jesus, God, when did Jesus start? When is he going to end? Nobody, nobody knows. I mean, it's just, he's kind of a, like a Melchizedek figure. Melchizedek is a king just like Jesus is. But notice that Melchizedek blesses Abraham. When someone blesses somebody in the Old Testament, it's not, oh, bless your heart. That's not what that means. A blessing is something that can only be bestowed on somebody, on, bestowed on somebody who's from, uh, from somebody who's a superior, more powerful, more rich individual. So you have to be of superior wealth and power to be able to bless someone else. So when Abraham gives a tenth of all his possessions to Melchizedek in honor of this God that Melchizedek is a priest of, uh, it's not like a tax. It's like, they, it's like Abraham saying, oh, I, I get it, that everything that I have comes from you, most high God. So I'm giving you 10% as an acknowledgement that, that I understand that. This is my faith in you. This is my shine of trust in you. So Melchizedek is a picture of Christ who's going to come and be, as the, as the Hebrew says, far better than Melchizedek was, better than any king of Israel was, better than any priest of Israel was. He's going to transcend them all. It's going to be God himself fulfilling the role of king of priests, king of, king of peace and priest, able to bless us, the God who's worthy of our trust, who will have this role forever. This king and priest will never die. He'll be a priest, king and priest forever. So he'll have it over all of the kings and priests of Israel who all passed on. And this king and priest is going to impact us. Hope you get that. He's going to rule and reign. I mean, he doesn't have the title king for no reason. He's going to, he's going to, he's going to govern the lives of his people. He's going to change the lives of his people. He's going to transform the lives of his people. His people are going to be a reflection of him. We know this from the book of Proverbs, don't we? You, you, you become who you hang out with, right? So if you're hanging out under the authority of Jesus, you're going to start becoming like him. But he's also a priest. He opens the door to us to be in a relationship with God and to experience everything that God wants us to experience. As a king, he brings order to our lives, but as a priest, he brings life to that order. So is there anyone you can think of in history that's like him. As a king, he was going to rule and reign over all the nations. He's the king of kings, lord of lords, the great I am, the holy of holies, the beginning and the end, the ancient of days. But he's also a priest advocating and connecting the people with God. To do so, he's got to be intimately aware of what they suffer, what they experience, how they feel, what they rejoice over, what they cry over. As a priest, he's got to be close to people, reigning yet intimate, higher than the heavens, but he knows what poverty feels like. He knows the riches of God and yet the humiliation of the cross. He's both the Lion of Judah but the Lamb of God, right? He's the conquering king, yet he's the suffering servant. You tell me if you got somebody else who fits 
that's better than that. He's so marvelous that everyone who sees him in all his glory will fall down as if dead, and yet so intimate and personal that by a mere touch, by a whisper, he can heal the lepers, the lame, the blind. He can raise the dead to new life. He's so beyond that he knows the names of all the stars and all the galaxies and all the universe, and yet knows exactly how many hairs you have on your head right now. So what does this do to our emotions? I think the truth of this Jesus as priest and king has got to be the stuff that David is thinking about when he writes things like in the later psalm, why are you so downcast, O my soul? Hope in God, we, we've got a priest king, and he's awesome. He reigns over me and is, will ultimately reign over all my enemies and his enemies. He is intimate also. He knows me and everything that I go through. There's just no one like him. If that weren't enough to stoke your emotions, the last part of this psalm looks at the issue of judgment. David says this. The Lord, it's a lowercase Lord, so he's talking about the Lord that he's serving. The Lord's at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. He will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. This is kind of the uncomfortable part of this psalm, isn't it? Kind of graphic, kind of violent. The psalmist depicts this, this priest king as a judge in the end, and then the judgment's going to be severe. Now, some of us might find this picture of God kind of hard to swallow, maybe a little bit archaic. I mean, aren't we past this view of God? I've got a bunch of commentaries I use to kind of help get a different perspectives on various patches, passages we use here. Uh, some of them are kind of modern commentaries. Some of them are kind of ancient ones from early church leaders and stuff. Uh, some of them, more recently, sometimes you get more, a kind of a more liberal approach, and they say, well, this isn't really talking about judgment on people. This is talking about judgment on God's enemies, like uh, spiritual enemies, like demons and the devil. And, you know, we don't, like, we don't really like the demons and the devil, so, okay, they get, what the, they get what they got coming to them, and it's okay with us, right? But it sort of softens it a bit because we don't, it doesn't really kind of say that God's going to, going to judge individuals. But I also have commentaries from people in the early church their views are completely different. Their churches were full of people who were slaves, marginalized people, poor people, people whose homes were sacked, their children kidnapped, family members slaughtered because of their faith. For those writers, this passage didn't just mean the spiritual enemies of God, the demons and devil. It meant their physical enemies who walked on this earth, who actually did them harm, who per perpetrators of injustice. Judgment meant that justice was coming for them too. So let me give you an example. St. Augustine wrote a sermon on this passage. And in the message, he said, look, look, there's, there's, a, there's a great and deep satisfaction that judgment is coming for the enemies of God. But it's also terrifying. I mean, not because we don't like the picture of judgment, Augustine says. We, we get it. We like the picture of judgment. But, especially for people we don't like, right? But, if we're honest, there have been times in our lives, and maybe more of those times than we'd like to admit, where we have been a party to unjust acts, where we've been apathetic to injustice. And God has very severe things to say about people who do this. It's passages like the one in Psalm 110, where there's a knowledge that God is going to come and be a judge, and it's terrifying. But, but Augustine says this, 
but it's really only terrifying for us if all we have is a king who comes and judges his enemies for all of their wrongdoing. But Augustine says, hallelujah. We have something more than that in this passage. We have a priest who sacrifices for his enemies because here in verse 7, it says this. So you've got to follow me on this because I'm going I'm I'm to fix this verse before we leave. Here's what verse 7 says. He, it's talking about the Lord, David's Lord, he will drink from the brook by the way, therefore he will lift up his head. I'm going to take extreme exception with this particular translation. Uh, it's from the English Standard Version, which is my go-to version of Bible translation. It's the one I used to study with. But, but this translation here totally messes up the meaning of this verse. Augustine and others, when they came to this verse, here's how they translated it. He will drink from the torrent or the flood. It's interesting that the Hebrew word for torrent and flood and little babbling book are all the same word. But they said, hey, he's going to drink from the torrent or the flood along the way. And here's why this is important. In the Bible, the image of drinking is often analogous to experiencing judgment. I'll give you a couple examples of this. Jesus, in the Garden of Gethsemane, he's praying, facing death the next day. What does he say? Let this cup pass from me. In other words, God, I I don't want to experience the judgment I'm about to face for the sins of the whole world. I don't want to drink that in. I don't want to drink that. And a flood or torrent is also used as judgment in another passage of Scripture. You probably heard about the great flood. God sent the great flood to judge the sin of the world, right? So our modern translation of this verse is just frankly kind of ridiculous. It suggests this, that Jesus, the priest, king, ruler of all, judger of all, priest of all, overcomes all of his enemies and crushes them, and he's, he's, just, he's just so tired and thirsty, and he just barely makes it to the brook to get a drink along the way, and somehow that refreshes him, and he can, he can carry on from there. That is not what this is saying. Here's what it's saying. You have two actions of a priest and a king in judging and drinking. You have a king who judges and has the power to overcome all of his enemies, but you also have a priest who drinks in the judgment of God for the sin of the world who sacrifices himself, not some animal, for the sin of the world, and then offers forgiveness to anyone who will place their faith in him, like David did by giving tenth of his possessions and proving that he had faith in this God that um, the Melchizedek worshipped. He's on the cross, right? He's drinking in the judgment. He's drinking in the wrath that you and I deserve, that Augustine actually said, yeah, if we, if we were honest, we would get it, that we've been, we've, we, are, we are purveyors of ju- justice as well. But our way out is the fact that there's a priest, not just a king. So Jesus drinks in the flood, drinks in the torrent, drinks in the judgment of all the people. He's the king who reigns and defeats his enemies, but he's also the priest who makes sacrifice for the sins of his enemies. 
But that sacrifice doesn't spell the end, right? Because, because of that sacrifice and death, God causes him to be raised from the dead. That's what the last part means. He said, oh, he, he, he drinks in the torrent. He drinks in the flood. By the way, therefore, therefore, as a result of that, in, as a result of that, the next thing that happens as a result of drinking that in, his head is going to be lifted. God causes him to be raised from the dead. He comes back from the dead. He's conquered death. And that's why he can rule and reign as our priest and king forever. Look, who else do you know in history that comes anywhere close to being this? Who else in the history of mankind has done anything like this? There's just nobody like him. There's no one like this king. There's no one like this priest. And through our faith in him, if you have sworn your allegiance to him, if you've given him your life, he's your king and he's your priest. And that means you're no longer an enemy. You don't have to fear judgment. And that's going to affect your emotions as you walk this planet. Knowing that he's going to serve as a priest and a king forever, there will never be a time. There will never be a circumstance that will ever change this for you if you are a genuine Christian. So we're going to take communion. Melchizedek isn't bringing it, but somebody will. A little piece of juice, a piece of bread. Let just what we talked about, Jesus being a priest and a king and a person who's going to judge, but he's not going to judge us because the price has already been paid and he's our priest and our king forever. Let that wash over you as we take communion. So go ahead and bring this up as I pray us out of here.